Shrink Wrap Radio number 823, Sex Therapist Tom Murray, Ph.D., on Making Nice with Naughty. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Rap Radio, all the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Dr. Tom Murray, an international trainer, educator, and couples and sex therapist. He's a widely sought-after expert in sexuality and intimate relationships, will be discussing his work and his 2022 book, Making Nice with Naughty, an intimacy guide for the rule-following, organized, perfectionist, practical, and color-within-the-line types. Now, here is the interview. Tom Murray, welcome back to Shrink Wrap Radio. So glad to be here Dr. Dave, thank you. Well, it's good to have you back. And uh, I say welcome back because I interviewed you back in 2008 when you were working at a college counseling center. That's right. That's right. I remember that fondly. And, and by the way, congratulations on your new book, Making Nice with Naughty. An intimacy guide for the rule-following, organized, perfectionist, practical. I got something wrong here. My typing (laughs) rule. Well, maybe not. Following, making nice with naughty. An intimacy guide for the rule-following, organized, perfectionist, practical, and color within the line types. So it's a practical type. Okay. So. You know, as I mentioned before, you were working in a, a, when we spoke way back in 2008, you were working in a college counseling center. What happened in your life to create this shift to becoming, uh, to focus on sexuality? That's a great question. Actually, that was the original plan. You know, when I went to the University of Florida, I uh, pursued a, a graduate degrees in couple and family therapy, and sex therapy is a natural extension of of that work. While I was at the University of Florida, I was also a hall director, and prior to that, in undergrad, I was a resident advisor. Okay. And so yeah. I had substantial student affairs experience after um, all that time, and uh, when I uh, when we started a family, uh, it just made more, I guess, I was being responsible, maybe a bit over-controlled, as we'll get to talk about later, and <laughs> wanting a job that gave me a consistent paycheck. And so uh, having that student affairs experience, I you know, moved in that direction. But the itch to become a sex therapist remained. Uh, and then when the timing was right, in two, 2014, I began to pursue that credential and then when I left the university in 2017, that uh, allowed me to start that niche specifically in couples and sex therapy. You know, you mentioned being a, a, a dorm advisor, a resident advisor, uh, working right. with students. And it flashed me back to when I was an undergraduate at the University of Pennsylvania. I got into some trouble uh, and uh, had to have you, the po- Dr. Dave. Oh yeah, <laughs> and so to to get out of the uh, uh, to persuade the police that my friend and I were in fact university students, 
call call our RA. And fortunately, the RA was in. I mean, he had no idea what we were up to, but but uh, oh yeah, they're they're good students. They're students here at the university. <laughs> so. Let's hear it for RAs. Uh, Absolutely. I, I think about that time in my life. I reflect on it often. And, and uh, it was just so enriching to uh, be a, a resident advisor and the, the, the uh, community that was built, the friendships that were forged. I, in fact, uh, uh, a friend of mine who was a fellow uh, RA, we were just texting earlier today. Day, so this is you know over twenty years ago, and wow. we maintain that relationship. Oh, that's great! That says something about you too, and and your own uh, your own emphasis on connection and uh, maintaining relationship. And um, I have to ask you uh, because you said it was your something about uh, you following the rules or something. Are you in fact an intimate, uh, are, are you a rule following, organized, perfectionist, practical and color within the line type of person? That in many ways, yes. Uh, but also that can be just my own convictions around um, uh, political things, for example. I can, you know, some, if I feel like something violates a, a social justice norm, then I might uh, shout a little louder to to, to make a point uh, yeah. uh, where where some overcontrolled people and we can talk about this later. There are two subtypes of overcontrolled people. There's the overly agreeable and then the overly disagreeable, which I didn't really explore in the book. But the overly agreeables are are more interested in being liked, and the overly disagreeables are the ones more interested in being right. I think I'm number so, one. <laughs> I'm the first type. <laughs> um, so what can you tell us about your work these days? Um, yeah, what, what, what are you doing? <laughs> well, now I own a group practice in North Carolina. Uh, I have a social worker and a counselor and uh, uh, the, the program primarily provides sex and couples therapy, although we do individual uh, therapy. And, and up until just about a month ago, I also um, had psychiatry as a service, but we, we decided to leave that away for um, uh, practical reasons. Uh, and, and, and in addition, my practice also includes an element of forensic sexology, which I, I know that you kind of dabbed your, uh, into that area relative to uh, uh, serial killers. Um, but the forensic sexology, doing, doing uh, mental health evaluations and, and psychosexual evaluations uh, for people who've gotten involved in the legal system. Uh, in addition, I'm also licensed in Oregon Pennsylvania, uh, and Florida. And so I have a few clients, uh, from those states as well. Uh, did you, did you get licensed in those other states just so that you'd be able to serve those, those clients or are they places where you have vacation homes or something? <laughs> I wish, <laughs> I wish I have uh, very good friends in Oregon who, uh, own uh, a group practice called new start psychiatry in Oregon, and I did some collaboration with them, and it made sense to get licensed in Oregon. And then um, in Pennsylvania, that's where I was born and raised. And then Florida, of course, is where I went to graduate school. So, you know, you kind of pick them up a, a, a along the way and, and, and try to make the use of, out of them. And, of course, with the pandemic, has really just altered the landscape for a lot of mental health professionals to begin providing services uh, via telehealth in a in a way that really just didn't exist at, on that scale um, prior to the pandemic. And so, how was that for you? Did that fit your work well, or did you find uh, you had difficult adjustments to make to begin doing it in a telehealth way? I much prefer, specifically when it comes to doing couples work, I much prefer seeing them in person. Um, my style of doing couples therapy, I think, lends better to in-person. Uh, that being said, I recognize that for a lot of people, 
you know, that having that option, uh, the telehealth option, uh, just makes it more practical for them. And therefore, yeah. I think it, it, it incentivizes them perhaps more to access services using, using telehealth. Uh-huh. Well, what led you to your writing your book, uh, Making, Ni- Making Nice with Naughty? Yeah. So um, I think, you know, there's a population of people who have uh, uh, grown up essentially being told naughty is a bad word. You know, uh, don't be naughty, be nice, be good, follow the rules. And, uh, uh, and so they were really domesticated into seeing naughtiness as really something bad. Um, and, and what I discovered when working with um, individuals and couples around sex and sexuality, it's that rule orientation that um, uh, interfered with their ability to find meaningful uh, meaning and fulfillment in their sex lives. Uh, and so one, one day, in fact, this was in the September of 2020, I was working with a couple, and it dawned on me that I bet I could predict uh, whether this, uh, the nature of this couple's sex life by just asking one question. Are you a be careful parent, or are you a have fun parent? In other words, if your child is on the playground and they're, they're, they're wanting to jump off of something really high, is your impulse to say, be careful, or is your impulse to be like, Oh, have fun. And what I found is that the be careful parents tended to have more problems in the bedroom or within their intimate relationship. What a cleverly indirect question. You know, this is, this is like the detective in a mystery novel who asked this perfect question. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 uh, Concurrently, I began to uh, learn about this emerging psychotherapy called Radically Open Dialectical Behavior Therapy, RODBT, uh, which uh, um, Thomas Lynch, Dr. Thomas Lynch, uh, developed in almost in response to traditional uh, DBT that, as you know, Marshall Linehan uh, uh, developed. And... Um, uh, that RODBT is specifically for people who lean over controlled or who have too much self-control. And that was the correlation that I noticed is that, that too much self-control was uh, a significant factor in low sexual desire, uh, as well as um, a sense of, of distance interpersonally with their partner, a low, low social connection with their partner, uh, as well as sexual problems such as um, uh, ejaculatory control problems, uh, delayed ejaculation, for example, um, or uh, vaginismus, uh, uh, dysperunia. Uh, you know, there's all various sexual problems that seem to be highly correlated with people who lean in that direction of too much self-control, which is you know, the culture out there really values self-control and and puts a, a, a sees it as virtues, planning, organized, high degree of responsibility, those things. And and in many ways those are our strengths. But I find that if they're going to be a problem, if that temperament is going to be a problem, it's going to be a problem in people's sex life and intimate relationships. Now, I would have thought that that characterization might apply more to an older group. Uh, are you talking about what, what age group are you talking about mostly, or is it not segregated by age at all? Uh, definitely not segregated by age. In fact, if you think again, like temperament, temperaments are neither good or bad. Introversion, extroversion are, are two of the most common temperaments. And, and those temperaments are also on a continuum. And so one can be mildly extroverted or, or you know, greatly extroverted. In a similar way, uh, over-controlled temperament, and I'll speak primarily about that, uh, uh, at the extreme ends of it, you have uh, disorders such as autism, uh, anorexia, 
um, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, uh, paranoid personality disorder. So at the very far end, you have those types of conditions, and as you know, they can impact people across the lifespan. Yeah. One of the things I like about your book is that you go to great lengths to reassure people that um, that if they have this personality style, to not label it as good or bad, or, or not label themselves as good or bad. That's right. That's right. Uh, in part, you know, because I'm over-controlled. Okay. <laughs> and... Uh, and, and so, uh, as by the way, most therapists, or just maybe not the most, but a disproportionate number of therapists lean over-controlled. People who go to graduate school in general tend to lean over-controlled. Yeah. So, there's, again, a lot of these uh, qualities that we think that we associate with being over-controlled make us very successful in our lives. So, it's really, it was really important for me both as a author and as a clinician, to avoid the tendency to pathologize um, uh, this phenomenon simply because there are areas of distress associated with it. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I'd like to uh, back away from your book a bit and uh, to get your observations about, about more generally about what's going on in our culture and in the world around sexuality. So what's your impression of the state of sex these days? Oh, that is, what a big question. I, I know it's a big question. <laughs> I, I'm assuming that given your specialty that you probably subscribe to some journals and so on where they give you statistics and they talk about cultural trends, etc. Well, right now, of course, um, there's this huge confusion, I think, uh, uh, within the United States uh, in particular around uh, gender expression and gender identity yeah. uh, and people struggling, some people struggling with uh, uh, choices around uh, pronouns and what, what people prefer to have, uh, how people prefer to be addressed. So we have, you know, that element, which is, you know, we 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 hear of states um, such as Florida and 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 Texas forbidding um, access to uh, transgender health care, uh, particularly for minors. So we, you know, we see a lot of these hot topics that are are uh, developing. Of course, uh, the the uh, pro pro choice pro life. Uh, is an important part of sexuality that disproportionately impacts one sex over another. Um, and then we have uh, uh, this cultural, these cultural assumptions around porn addiction. Um, you know, that's a that's a hot topic with, the, with among among sexual health professionals, in part because you know, ASEC, the American Association for Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, which uh, is through which I have my certification, being the the premier organization for certifying sexual health professionals, uh, we have a we have a uh, uh, we have found very little empirical support for the use of the phrase sex addiction, but it's 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 widely popular, uh, and instead we prefer to call it um, out-of-control sexual behavior rather than an addiction. So, for example, uh, David Lee, a psychologist who's uh, written a lot in this area, uh, uh, I believe he's the one that said, if someone washes their hands 100 times a day, we wouldn't call that a hand-washing addiction. Or if someone watches six hours of football on a Sunday, we wouldn't call that addiction. But for some reason, if we add porn to it, we, we immediately associate it with an addiction. Interesting. That was one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, was porn. So, so in that organization and in your own practice, you're not regarding porn as addictive. That's right. And um, so what stance do you take towards it? 
Well, typically what we find is that um, if there's a problematic relationship with porn, there are other um, uh, elements that that seem to be um, associated with it. So, for example, uh, religiosity is highly correlated with developing a problematic relationship with porn. So the more religious someone is, the more likely there's going to be an egodystonic relationship with their porn use. Um, uh, uh, or uh, that there may be already pre, uh, prior to the development of the problematic porn use, a unsatisfactory relationship with their primary partner, where perhaps a period of time has gone by where um, it may have been a sexless relationship. Yeah. And the person uses pornography uh, in order to um, uh, address some of their own sexual uh, needs. Um, I find that the, 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 those who are, are uh, assigning the label of sex addiction or porn addiction primarily comes from partners, not from mental health professionals. So if you're on the receiving end feeling like your partner is putting too much emphasis on, on sex, it's a knee-jerk reaction then to uh, assume that the person must have a sex addiction. Now, that isn't to say, of course, that people, there are some people who legitimately have um, an out-of-control uh, relationship with porn where it does interfere with um, perhaps pursuing relationships that are in a healthy way where it, it interferes with their ability to maintain employment, etc. You know, those instances certainly do exist. But for the most part, the vast majority, I would, in my assessment, who've been given that label, there are other contexts that better explain the behavior than simply calling it an addiction. Yeah. You know, I'm aware that um, tomorrow is the midterm uh, elections. People are going to be voting if they haven't already voted by uh, mail, proxy. Um, and and you said something about politics and it's make you know, so we're living in a situation where politics crosscuts sexuality and has impacts and implications, right, for sexuality, for one's uh, own conception of their sexuality, as well as their uh, sexual transactions with other people. Yeah, that's, you know, that's kind I, of interesting, it, right? I, I don't. Th yeah. It's a new perspective. It kind of, it's, it's, that's right. It, it, it's somewhat surprising that uh, you know what used to be regarded as something sacred to the bedroom has become really part of the national conversation. We we used to say, well, whatever occurs in the bedroom, that's that person's business, and we've taken that <laughs> from the bedroom and and uh, uh, placed upon it evaluations that we then associate with the individual. And plus we put it on video. Some of us put it on video and uh, and others of us watch it, watch the video. And then that shapes, um, that can shape the partner's expectations and, right. and and concerns their own their own self doubts. Well, geez, I watched this these people uh, on pornography, and uh, they're doing all kinds of stuff, and they're loving it. So maybe I should be doing that too. And that maybe my partner should want to be doing that as well. Yeah. And then they then they realize, and and that's in it. That you know, porn literacy is. Uh, uh, also an er area of advocacy for sexual health professionals. Uh, we, we want people to understand that porn is entertainment. It is not education. Uh, and so uh, to give an example, uh, we, uh, you know, the, if, if one understands more about how uh, films are, are, are produced, then 
then it, it takes some of the glitter off of the experience. Yeah, it's easy uh, to forget that is, there are a whole bunch of other people in the room, <laughs> people with cameras, yes, yes. microphones, etc. And they're taking breaks. You know, they're taking – these are – they have to follow the the, the – the employment, most of these films are, are, are made in California. And so they have to follow a lot of the employment laws that are still in place. Uh, um, a little known uh, uh, fact about me is that I'm an external consultant for a major adult uh, toy distributor, which is, uh, which also um, distributes a significant number of, of, of pornography. And uh, my job for this this company is that I evaluate the porn to ensure that it doesn't violate community standards. So, in fact, I I, uh, did that over this past weekend. And my job is to critique it to ensure that consent is clear, that uh, it doesn't uh, uh, engage in any activity that would uh, be attractive to uh, uh, the particularly uh, perverse, um, and and so there are companies that are really uh, intentional about the kind of of pornography that they're distributing to ensure that it does um, keep with community standards. Well, that's that is a surprising thing to learn about you, and uh, and some people would probably think, wow. That's a dream job, <laughs> but uh, I wouldn't think so. Uh, you, you talked about porn as as um, entertainment, and uh, my own experiences with porn uh, is, is really boring stuff. If you have to watch very much of it, it's very well, very that, repetitive. There's only so much that's going to happen. <laughs> Well, that's absolutely right. And and for me, I'm watching for what's wrong with it, yeah, not for what, what's exciting about it. Yeah, you know that that's quite the difference uh, uh, for me. You know, I remember telling my my dad how much I got paid to be this consultant, and it what it did. Uh, 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 it didn't matter that I had a PhD and a business. It, that, it was at that point he said, "Son, you have finally arrived." <laughs> in other words he thought it sounded like a good gig it sounded like a good gig yeah 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 it's an interesting gig um what about just, wait, yeah. if i uh, if i may you know when i hear people say to the you know they might say about their spouse you know that, that they 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 watch too much porn. In my mind, I'm thinking, I don't think so. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, they knew how much porn I, I watched for a living. Uh, uh, oh. <laughs> or, or how would they, how would they feel if they, if their partner, uh, were paid, uh, handsomely to watch the porn? You know, would that make much yeah. of a difference? Now, that being said, you know, people have moral, uh, uh, reasons to not watch porn or want to be with someone who watches porn. And that's totally acceptable. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, people uh, can choose for themselves to what degree, if any, uh, pornography is going to have in, in, in their lives. But what we do know is that couples who watch porn together uh, tend to report a higher level of sexual and relationship satisfaction. Uh-huh. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Um, what has been the impact of COVID on sexual behavior, sexuality, sexual activity? It, it, it depends on the, the group that you're, uh, you know, the demographic. So, you know, we have, uh, uh, polyamory, you know, polyamory, uh, ethical non-monogamy. These are other aspects of culture that I think are, are increasingly, um, uh, uh, a part of, of social discourse, and and so as you can imagine, COVID really uh, put the kibosh on swinging uh, or you know uh, 
people um, pursuing um, non non monogamous sexual relationships, uh, and and yeah. and then um, you know during COVID, you may have heard about monkeypox, yeah, uh, and uh, its prevalence of, uh, uh, among men who have sex with other men. Um, uh, you know, all of these things are, are had had certainly had implications. Now, immediately uh, when when COVID began, a lot of people uh, were were incentivized to move in together who may not have lived together because they had to socially socially isolate, and 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 so you may have seen an uptick in um, people using that time to explore each other's bodies and and um, themselves. Uh, but as time went on and people were only spending time with each other, well, that level of closeness uh, minimizes a lot of what we find to be erotic, such as mystery and spontaneity. Uh, and so that negatively impacted uh, couples' sexual relationships. Wow, so many, uh, so many dimensions to this. Um, what's the state of people getting together these days? I was, uh, I spoke to one of my TAs back when I was still teaching, and uh, and somehow the the uh, to, the topic of dating came up. Maybe I asked him, you know, are you, are you dating much? And and he told me that, um, well, we don't date. We hook up. And so he described he would go to a party, and uh, if there was some sexual excitement with, with some woman there, uh, they would hook up. And without necessarily any expectations of that that was going to lead to going steady or to getting married or engaged or anything like that. So I don't know if that was a very rare thing or if that's kind of a very common thing for young people these days. Yeah, I think that uh, uh, what we're finding is that there's greater acceptance in certain circles for people to enjoy um, sexual encounters with others, which may or may not include penetration. It may just simply be manual stimulation, kissing, uh, uh, oral sex. Um, so there's a, a, a variety of ways in which, you know, consenting adults can enjoy each other's bodies without this expectation of a commitment. So, you know, when we were children, we would go to a playground, and if there were other children at the playground, we would play with those other children, and we would depart the playground without an expectation that they will be our playmates for life, right? And so I think that uh, the parallel can be made for a lot of people that, you know, they, they see sex as, as uh, a, 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 a adult play, that they get to enjoy with other people, uh, and that, and and you know, within within uh, the sex therapy community, we have a saying: "Don't yuck someone else's yum." <laughs> so you know, I don't uh, cast dispersions on on other people's choices as long as that is consensual. You know, if, if both parties are agreeing to the terms, then uh, it's totally acceptable from my opinion, um, uh, although there are others who uh, hold, for whatever reason, uh, uh, different expectations for themselves and others sexually, and, you know, that can be acceptable too. It seems to me that pandemics, uh, may, maybe a lot of the sexual morality of the past that came down to us were in some part the result of pandemics where intimacy, sexual intimacy would, you know, lead to deaths. And the fact that 
the uh, the boundaries between nations, cultures, etc., with modern travel and so on. Uh, these pandemics are. I'm not sure. I think we're still in one, and uh, I'm not sure that this is going to be the end. And so, I'm thinking that there may be a re-embracing of older moralities driven by the necessity of the desire to stay alive. Uh, certainly, I think that that's true if one's uh, choices easily impact one's community, right? So, you know, with, with such as airborne contagions, for example, um, but, it, you know, it's, it's relatively recent within the scope of human history that we understood uh, the nature of germs and, and viruses. Uh, and, and so most of the, the sexual morality uh, that we, we come to know, such as around virginity, uh, was really about viewing women as property. And, and so uh, if you had a daughter, for example, that you could confirm was a virgin, then her value uh, to another family was um, significantly higher. And so uh, uh, there's a lot of economics that was involved in uh, uh, legislating uh, sexuality. Um, you know, that being said, you know, the, the, the uh, over-controlled people um, tend to have a high degree of moral superiority. And so uh, if you recall uh, from particularly from the 90s, there was the purity movement uh, of the 90s where churches uh, in particular uh, had programs to have um, teenagers primarily uh, the girls within the congregations to commit to uh, uh, remaining celibate uh, and, and free of unpure, impure thoughts. Uh, and, and, and so if you're already an over-controlled person biotemperamentally, and then you grow up in a community that uh, really privileges those moral stances, then when you do say I do, and you're supposed to auto, you know, just the flip of a switch be enjoying sex, it can create a, a, a lot of problems for that person in that relationship to transition into uh, a, a phase of life where sex is, is to be enjoyable and fun if you've been told your whole life that it's a source of danger. Yeah, yeah. You remind me, I came up partly in a um, fundamentalist Christian environment. And so I remember in my initial sexual encounters, the, the struggle of the female partners with, I, I felt less of that constraint for myself. Mm. <laughs> uh, something I, I attribute it to is something about Male, maleness and the culture of maleness, at least at the time that I came up. Um, so my own initial experience, uh, my f initial orgasm experience with a young woman, with a girlfriend, was uh, feeling like I had found God. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, this, <laughs> this is what it's about. <laughs> and, uh, if, if God's down on this, well, something's going to have to change here. That really yeah. was a parting place. One of the parting places for me with, uh, with traditional religion. I think, I think, you know, again, with, with traditional religion, there's, has been, uh, for centuries, it would seem, just this double message uh, that that uh, the implications of sex for boys and men are uh, very different than the implications right. for girls and women. Yeah. And uh, I think we would give lip service to um, uh, the the uh, abstinence re relative to boys and men. Uh, but the social consequence 
for for boys and men to have sex uh, prior to marriage was uh, much less than the social consequences for girls and women to have sex prior to marriage. Well, in fact, it might enhance your standing. That's right. You know, as a young man, uh, to be sexually active and... uh, you know, in, in a lot of situations in public high schools and so on, uh, I imagine that's still a a standard of what happens between males. It, it very much is, and if you're already over controlled, uh, the 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 social uh, message is that uh, males should uh, know everything there is to know about sex right out of the gate. Yeah, and and as a consequence, there's that that message, and yet uh, the the sex education that we get in this country is so paltry that they don't understand there are going to be times when they want an erection and they're not going to get one, and so the expectation is that you should have an erection every time you want one, when that just isn't the case, uh, and that. When they don't quite understand that being a normal, uh, a natural phenomenon, and that, and then they have the experience, then they're going to be anticipating problems in the future, and that spike of adrenaline about am I going to be able to get an erection uh, uh, interferes with their ability to get an erection. Yeah. So it turns into this pattern, and then. Uh, depending on the nature of the over-controlled person, they might start avoiding sex or intimate uh, situations with their partner because they're afraid they're not going to get an erection. And, it could, and then that produces uh, a relationship distance, and and uh, which fuels its own set of problems. So you can see just how, you know, as a systems-trained therapist, you can see how all of these various elements uh, impact uh, sexual expression. Well, it's certainly, you know, speaking of systems orientation, I mean, we're definitely talking about wheels within wheels within wheels. Uh, it's terribly complex. That it, it, it is. And, and, and when it comes to male sexuality, I think for, for too long, have we, we've implied that it isn't, that, that it's, it's very simple and that only female sexuality is complex. And, and now we're, we're appreciating that sexuality is complex for people across the board. Yeah, yeah. I'm, th- I'm thinking back to uh, the, the times, the days of Wilhelm Reich and other uh, early psychoanalysts, and there was this uh, uh, movement towards sexual hygiene, which basically meant sex education because uh, um, presumably the, the there wasn't the, a lot of people were ignorant about you know, the mechanics and all the ins and outs so to speak <laughs> and uh, but today we're flooded with sexual information right in all sorts of media you know when I was a kid and I heard them, and I in some ways came up in a sheltered environment because of that religious thing, and uh, heard somebody talk about a rubber, and you know, a rubber. <laughs> What's a rubber? <laughs> and um, today, probably kids from very, very early on all know about what a rubber is, right? And uh, and yet. Our sexual difficulties haven't gone away. They have not. They have not. <clears throat> and one may may kind of have a uh, a general uh, sense. You know, a teenager may have a general sense what a condom is, but you know that doesn't mean they know how to use them. Uh, I have I have two teenage boys, and uh, my uh, oldest had his first girlfriend last year. And I said, well, you know what that means? Condom demonstration. And so uh, at, at the dinner table, I had condoms and I had phalluses. And, and, and both he and my younger son, uh, I used that as an, an opportunity to demonstrate how to uh-huh. use condoms. 
but in a very low stress, low, it's just a matter of fact, this is how we, you know, used it. Um, And, and, you know, what the evidence suggests is that when the younger you are, and the more thorough your sex education is during childhood and adolescence, the longer you delay your first sexual episode. So by by uh, treating sex as just this normal, natural part of life with quality education, people uh, we find that people tend to delay uh, sex. But we're we're in this culture of of abstinence where we think that the best way to handle this is not talking about it. Yeah. Uh, and then we wonder why in so many communities there are, uh, uh, you know, teenage pregnancy uh, existing. Although it certainly has gotten better since I think uh, the 80s. But, uh, uh, you know, it's still, you know, in, the, in those communities that feel abstinence is uh, the only way, um there isn't any evidence that sexual health outcomes are better. Yeah, the political, we come back to the political divide, political cultural divide that exists today in our culture and, and, and maybe even in other countries, you know, even though their history is a little different than ours. I think a lot of these, these uh, dynamics are similar. And, um, you know, so there's real resistance to sex education in schools. Yeah. And, and uh, well, there's this, this cultural anti-science in general. Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to get us off into such a, a burdensome area. What's your advice to our listeners and our viewers about healthy sexual expression, what what would you want them to take away from uh, our conversation here? Well, the the ultimate takeaway is that uh, within that people get to decide what is uh, their own sexual style, and then they get to, to uh, negotiate that with their partner, who also gets to decide their own sexual style. That it isn't society's uh, 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 right to define for you what uh, is is erotic, for example. Um, that you know people people decide that for themselves, uh, and and that um, those who have uh, problems relative to sexual uh, expression and, and intimacy uh, with their partner. You know, the basis of my book is to um, uh, is really to speak to those people who seem so rule oriented, who have this strong belief about how the world should be, must be and has to be um, that uh, uh, that rule following orientation. Uh, there's a there's a whole uh, uh, world of opportunity to enjoy sex. And for a lot of people, um their sex life is, again, a very significant source of meaning. Um, you know, uh, it, it's so sad when I hear some of my patients talk about uh, the sexual side effects of medication, which we really we didn't talk about much, uh, or I didn't talk about much in the book. Uh, but they go to their prescriber, and the prescriber somewhat poo-poos it uh, without acknowledging that when you're on medication and your desire is tanked or you have difficulty orgasming, um, how impactful that is emotionally and psychologically and interpersonally that uh, 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 it, it, it deserves its attention um, where people are like, well, you know, the depression is more important than, than whether you're able to orgasm uh, when I would argue that it's precisely someone's ability to have uh, some fun uh, in this context, in the bedroom, that, that may be helpful in managing the depression. Uh huh. Interesting. So, who should buy your book, and why? Uh, anyone who is rule-following, organized, perfectionist, practical, and color within the line type, who recognize for themselves that um, there's something missing uh, relevant 
relative to their or their sex life, or they they wonder why does my partner and I have so much distance between us? Um, uh, you know, the overcontrolled temperament. A, a perfect example of an overcontrolled person, or the prototypical example, is someone who goes behind their partner to rearrange the dishwasher because it wasn't done right. <laughs> and if, if you if you can imagine what that must feel like to your partner to to feel like they're never ever quite measuring up to their other partner standards, yeah. how that might impact sexual receptivity, for example. Um, uh, so the book is really a, a meant for the general audience of people who who have come to recognize that their their uh, quality of too much self-control, though a virtue in many areas of their life, has created these impediments within their sexual and intimate relationship. And I go through a number of, of strategies informed by radically open dialectical behavior, um, uh, um, Acceptance and commitment therapy uh, and a rational emotive behavior therapy. That's oh, okay. Albert Ellis. Albert uh, Ellis, of course. Rational emotive behavior therapy, and so there's these uh, 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 these well established uh, therapeutic approaches that help uh, the reader examine their own mind chatter and to lean into anxiety. Knowing that that wherever that is is their growth edge, and 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 in that process they are able to develop the the level of intimacy that they both want and fear at the same time. Okay, those are very good reasons to buy your book. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Tom Murray, I want to thank you for being my guest again on Shrinkwrap Radio. It was great speaking again with my return guest, Thomas Murray, Ph.D. I interviewed him back in 2008. A lot of water has gone under the bridge for both of us during those intervening 14 years. Back then, he was working in a university counseling center. Now he's built a strong reputation in couples counseling and sex therapy. In our interview, I learned that he's also something of a businessman, having created his own multidisciplinary treatment center, A Path to Wellness, in Greensboro, North Carolina. He was already a high achiever back in 2008, but has gone on to master a number of therapeutic and counseling approaches since then. He's also the author of the 2022 book, Making Nice with Naughty, an intimacy guide for the rule-following, organized, perfectionist, practical, and color-within-the-line types. He freely admits to being one of these over-controlled, follow-the-rules types himself. In fact, he suggests most of us who have gone through graduate school and become therapists or counselors are probably similarly inclined. Another reason why he can admit to these proclivities in himself is that he doesn't consider these descriptors to be value judgments, just as he asserts that people should not be judged as either good or bad for being an introvert or extrovert. However, he notes that people who are excessively perfectionistic often experience any of a variety of sexual difficulties. In fact, this personality type is the sort of person to whom his self-help book is addressed. They can learn to be less judgmental of themselves and their sexual partners. Sexual freedom and orgasms don't thrive under the blinding light of judgment. Among many influences, he particularly credits a relatively new and emerging psychotherapy called Radically Open Dialectical Behavior Therapy, or RODPT, developed by psychologist Thomas Lynch, Ph.D. Unlike its more famous cousin, 
Dialectical Behavior Therapy, or DBT, which focuses on symptoms associated with the under-controlled coping style, RODPT focuses on the problems most associated with having too much self-control. Tom's book is written in a very relaxed, conversational, even fun style. Here are some snippets to give you an example of the book's style. Quote, the over-controlled or OC temperament is like other temperaments such as introversion and extroversion. Neither is right nor wrong, good nor bad. Rather, OC denotes a way of being in the world. People who lean toward OC are likely to be the rule-following, organized, perfectionistic, practical, and color-within-the-lines types. Close quote. Here's another quote. But before we begin, let me bring your attention to the concept of psychological obesity. This occurs due to the regular consumption of thoughts and ideas that aren't metabolized into action. It's just as if you were to eat too many calories for your needs, you'll gain weight. Likewise, OCs tend to consume many ideas by reading self-help books, listening to podcasts, and on and on, hoping to find the perfect answers that ensure they'll avoid problems in the future. However, inaction means uncertainty in the outcome. Consequently, OCs can find that they often don't take action despite having excellent ideas. Let's not make that happen here. Close quote. Finally, quote, I don't want you to just read this book and move on to the next self-help author. This is not just a book of ideas. Sure, I want you to learn more about yourself and your psychology. Parentheses, I'm a shrink. I get off on that shit. <laughs> Close paren. But more importantly, I want you to develop psychological flexibility, identify what's really important, and take committed action toward your values. I'll ask that you experiment with life more than you've ever done before, which introduces changing your relationship with certain feelings, such as anxiety, awkwardness, and uncertainty. Close quote. Finally, it's especially gratifying to me to discover that Tom has been listening and learning from Shrinkwrap Radio since the very beginning of the show in 2005. Needless to say, I strongly recommend Making Nice with Naughty by Dr. Tom Murray. Hi, Dr. Dave. This is Jason. I want to say thank you. Your program has been a wonderful resource for me, getting to hear from people of diverse backgrounds, beliefs, and practices. Robert Hedaya in particular resonates with me. Also Richard Katz, Monica Wickman, Alexander Shester, just to name some. But really the stories and insights shared by you and all of your guests, as well as hearing from supporters, have all been gifts. So thank you to all of you. The lessons and practices I've learned from research and teachers, as well as powerful experiences, have been integral in my own path uh, through anxiety and depression and unveiling the mystery that is myself and the conditions within and around me. And I've decided it would be most meaningful for me to help others in their healing, growth, and transformation to become truer versions of themselves and find meaning in their lives. So I've made it my intention to apply to graduate school and become a therapist. And part of that intention is getting back to those who support me. So thank you for the insights and the guidance. So I don't have much in the way of monetary resources. I decided that it's important for me to support you in Shrink Rap Radio. So to any of your listeners considering making a contribution, I encourage you to do so and would ask how much you are willing to expend on a good book or making a nice meal for a loved one. Dr. Dave, your openness, curiosity, and humility come through in your talks, and I appreciate the gifts you bring me and others through the work you do. Thank you. Thank you, aspiring therapist Jason. Given your limited budget, I really appreciate your taking the step to make yourself part of the paying shrink wrap radio community and encouraging others to follow your fine example. And of course, thank you to all you other monthly supporters. 
Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks again to my return guest, sex and relationship therapist, Dr. Tom Murray, for discussing your work and your book, Making Nice with Naughty, as well as indulging my curiosity about some of the broader issues around sexuality today. If all goes well, my next interview will be with attachment specialist and podcaster Adam Lane Smith, who is blessed with a huge online audience. I'm hoping we'll discover his secret sauce. Once again, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.